You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. We're again looking at uh, John's first letter to this church. And two weeks ago when I was here, we talked about how, how John uh, knew that there are some within the church who were deceived and were trying to deceive others. And so John's focus, Apostle John's focus in this letter is Jesus and his message. And two weeks ago, we looked at how part of that message is that God is light. And as God is light, that is part of how we then begin to change as God brings the gospel and the light of the gospel and the person of Christ to us. Or again, as John is dealing with some of this stuff in the church, he's also uh, wanting to encourage the church, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to... to um, to, to grow in your love for God, then you need to remember Jesus and his works. And in these two short passages, it's, in, it's full with important, radical changing truths that we need to understand. And it's about Jesus, and it's about Jesus and how he changes us. So let's turn with me, and let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And so I'm not sure what version I'm reading from the... Um, ESV, English Standard Version, and I think that's up there, so good. So here we go. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Uh, Father, again, we thank you that we can meet here this morning and we can look at your word. Because we know that your word is life-changing. That your spirit, Holy Spirit, delights to use your word to, to make us more and more into the image of Christ. To help us to be more faithful in following you, Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, do that work of grace even now as we listen and hear the word preached. And we ask this through Christ, who is glorious and wonderful and beautiful. Amen. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. I don't know about you, but often in my Christian journey, and maybe your Christian journey, that we have this perspective that that, that sometimes God loves us and sometimes God doesn't. He loves me when I'm doing all the right things, but he doesn't love me when I'm not doing those things that he wants me to do. Or you may be thinking, am I good enough? Did I do enough that God will be happy with me? Or is God always mad at me because I continue to sin again and again this particular sin? Is he angry on how I'm living my life? Or maybe some of you here this morning saying, well, God is not angry at all. Why would he be angry with me? I'm not all that bad. So why would God have to be angry with me? Well, this passage this morning, I believe, helps us to work through these beliefs and thoughts. And as two weeks ago I gave you three key words, I want to leave you with some three key phrases this week. So the first phrase I want us to hold on to is Jesus as our advocate. So advocate. 
The second key word is atoning sacrifice. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. And the third key words are accepting, actively accepting these two truths in our lives. So let's first look at verse 1 and see Jesus is our advocate. Let me read verse 1 again. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now in John's phrase, my little children, John is showing such an affectionate love to these believers. He loves these people in this church. He loves them so so much that he, he is passionate about helping them fix their eyes on Jesus and two particular works of Jesus in this passage. But also in that phrase, little children, he's showing that he has authority over them. He, is the, he has the apostolic office, and he is the father in their faith. So yes, he speaks compassionately and passionately, but he speaks with authority. Because remember, right, there are people deceiving them, getting their eyes off of Jesus and his message. And so he is coming with authority, with passion, and with compassion to remind them of important truths. So we see that, that as he writes these things about Jesus and his message, he says, so why? So you do not sin. So what does he mean that you may not sin, especially as it relates to the, second, the next statement? But if any, anyone does sin. Well, Jesus does not want these believers to sin. But he knows that they will sin due to their sinful nature, right? We have a sin, if we're in Christ, if we put our faith in Christ, we have both a sinful nature and a new nature. And so John understands the struggle, as we learned two weeks ago, of that sin struggle in our lives. Right? He's reminding this church, he's reminding us that as well. You see, John wants them, he wants us to respond to God's mercy with a life of obedience and a life of a hunger for holiness. So John is not condoning sin, but he's helping us to see that God's mercy provides us a way to deal and work through our sin. I like what John Stott, how he encourages us here. He says, and he talks about the attention between um, different views of this grace. It's, It's possible to be both too lenient and too severe towards sin. Too lenient too great obedience would seem almost to encourage sin in the Christian by stressing God's provision for the sinner. A severity description would deny the possibility of a Christian sinning or refusing or to or refuse him the forgiveness and restoration if he falls. Stott summarizes both extreme positions are contradicted by John. Yes, we sin, but we have a way out of our sin. So again, John reminds us of the provision that we have in Christ to deal with this dilemma. And the first provision that John is passionately reminding the church and reminding us is the advocacy of the righteous Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus as our advocate is the one who pleads our case to God based on his finished work on the cross. This The whole worship service this morning has prepared us to to see that, to look at that. 
He is the one who is advocating on our behalf. What's interesting, uh, in the New Testament Greek, this word is also rendered as comforter, which means a calling to one side. And certainly this is a role that Christ plays in our lives if we truly believe. But he's more than just a comforter. He's more than one that just comes along our side. He is the advocate. This describes anybody summoned to the assistance of another. It could be a friend who comes to help another friend who needs the defense. Or better yet, it's a, it's a, a lawyer or a one who is a counsel for the defense to plead the case of a person on trial. I was a big fan of Matlock, and he was a master, right, of defending the accused. Well, think of Matt, Jesus on steroids of Matlock, right? <laughs> he defends our case effectively. See, we know from other scriptures as well that the Holy Spirit pleads Christ's cause before the world. But here, listen, Christ pleads our cause against our accuser and with the Father who loves and forgives his children. You see, Jesus is actively and continually presenting us who still sin and who still struggle with sin as righteous, as acceptable before the Father. What does John say the kind of advocate we have? What does it say? We have a righteous one. He's, a, he's described as a righteous advocate. And this is a composite expression indicating Jesus' human nature, his messianic office, messianic office, and his righteous character. See, the righteousness here that John is is, is encouraging us to understand it, signifies Christ's moral perfections, his moral purity, his sinlessness. Why is that important? Why is John emphasizing this? See, it's only through our righteous and perfect Savior that we can be cleansed from all unrighteousness and that we can experience total and thorough forgiveness. See, only our righteous advocate a sinless advocate could plead our cause before a righteous God. So this is how it works for us. When we sin, Jesus pleads our case before the Father based on his finished work on the cross that says we are forgiven. He's doing that today as we were confessing our sins. Jesus is advocating for us before the Father. He does that when we leave this, this place and we enter into the world and as we still continue with sin, Jesus is still advocating for the Father, reminding the Father they are forgiven, they are accepted, they are loved. Jesus, advocacy. Fix your eyes on Jesus and his advocacy work on your behalf. Advocate work on your behalf. But John also wants us to fix our eyes on Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. Look at verse 2. It says, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what in the world does propitiation mean? And sometimes I can't even say it. <laughs> it is a, a million-dollar word with huge, immense, eternal impact. You know why Jesus, why we saw him this morning, he's glorious, he's wonderful, he's beautiful, why God is all these things. It's not only because of his, his 
being his, our average, but because of this work right here. So what does it mean? See, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered by God removed God's wrath, which we rightly deserved, from us and placed it on his son, Jesus. See, Jesus Christ's sacrifice to God took away the enmity, the hostility brought by our sin between God and his children. Listen to what one has said. This is a powerful truth. Follow along carefully as I read this. The Christian propitiation is quite different, not only in character of the divine anger, but in the means by which it is propitiated. It is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. The initiative is not taken by us, nor even by Christ, but God himself in sheer, unmerited love. His wrath is averted not by any external gift, but by his own self-giving to die the death of sinners. This, that, is the means he, he himself contrived, he contrived, God contrived, by which we turn where he turned his own wrath away. God chose to kill his son, to receive the wrath of God because of our sin so that we would not have to, out of love for us. Some have also interpreted this phrase, propitiation, as expiation, E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N, which means Jesus' atoning sacrifice removes our guilt of sin, that he has cleansed and removed and covered our sins. J.R. Packard says this about those two words. The difference is that expiation means only half of what propitiation means. Expiation is an action that has sin as its object. It denotes the covering, the putting away, or the rubbing out of sin so it no longer constitutes a barrier to friendly fellowship between man and God. Propitiation, however, in the Bible denotes all that expiation means, but also the pacifying of the wrath of God thereby. Think about it. Meditate on it. Dwell on this amazing truth that we have in Christ. Because of the death of Jesus Christ, because of his atoning sacrifice, God is no longer angry with us. Additionally, our guilt and shame due to our sin no longer needs to define us. For Jesus has removed the guilt of all past, present, and future sin in our life. And Jesus has taken our shame. As a counselor, I hear many stories of people wrestling with guilt and shame. They wrestle with, is God angry with me when I do this or I don't do that? And I faithfully turn them to Jesus and remind them, no, God has took your shame. God has took your guilt. He's no longer angry with you. It has been satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
John says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is your advocate who is pleading your case before the Father. He is your atoning sacrifice who reminds you that you're accepted and loved and forgiven. There's nothing we can do that can earn that favor, earn that approval. It has been done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. One other phrase that we need to dissect a little bit. What does it mean by also for the sins of the whole world? There is in some sense in which the propitiatory work of Jesus on the cross extends not only just to believers, but to the entire world. It has somewhat impact on the entire world. This is not to say, let me be clear, that the benefits of Jesus' propitiatory work will accrue to the world unless the world turns to him and accepts the free gift of life which he offers. But it is offered to the entire world and not only to believers only. But it also helps us to see that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, not only during the time of John, but it's valid anywhere in the world and for all times. His sacrifice requires no addition or supplement. Not because, in any sense, it continues, he continues to offer his sacrifice, but because his sac sacrifice was offered once, it has eternal virtue, which is effective today in those who believe. The advocacy, righteous character, and the propitiation death all depend upon one another. John Stott encourages, he, Jesus could not be our advocate in heaven today if he had not died to be the propitiation for our sins. And his propitiation would not have been effective if his life and character, if he had not been Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John is very clear to the church. Do not listen to those who are trying to deceive you. Listen to the faithful, consistent message in the person, Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That is what's going to help you to change. So our last key words is actively accept this truth, these truths about Jesus. Because I believe as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we actively accept that, that Jesus is pleading our case, that, he, that his anger is no longer uh, out to get us, right? Then we will have a hunger for holiness. It'll mean that we'll be honest with our sin struggle. And we will take it seriously as God takes our sin struggle seriously. Because we understand it cost him his very beloved son. And so as we hunger for holiness, we, we will work with God as he works within us through his spirit to figure out what is causing, what's the issues behind those sin struggles that we have. And we can go knowing that God is for us and with us in that struggle. Charles Spurgeon says this, The Christian no longer loves sin. It's the object of his sternest horror. He no longer regards it as a mere trifle, plays with it, or talks of it with unconcern. He looks at it as a deadly serpent whose very shadow is to be avoided. He would no more venture voluntarily to put its cup to his lip than a man would drink poison who had once almost died, lost his life through it. 
He says, sin is dejected in the Christian heart, though it is not ejected. Sin may enter the heart and fight for dominion, but it cannot sit upon the throne. Tim Keller shares this about a woman in his church. He says this in his book, Prodigal God. Some years ago, I met a woman who began coming to Redeemer, the church where I am a minister. She said that she had gone to a church growing up and she had always heard that God accepts us only, accepts us only if we are sufficiently good and ethical. She never heard the message she was now hearing, that we can be accepted by God by sheer grace through the work of Christ, regardless of anything we do or have done. Listen to what she says. She said, that is a scary idea. Oh, it's a good scary, but still scary. Keller goes on, I was intrigued. I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace. She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God would ask or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if, but if this is really true, that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace through the work of Christ at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. She could see immediately that the wonderful beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace had two edges to it. On the one hand, it, can, it cuts away slavish fear. God loves us freely despite our flaws and failures. Yet she also knew that if Jesus really has done this for her, she was not her own. She was brought, bought with a price. You see, understanding the infinite cost of God through, through the work that Jesus is doing for, has done for us that brings us into an acceptable relationship will reshape our lives. If we struggle with selfishness as God is working, as we understand the infinite cost of God's grace, we will work with him to figure out ways where we can be more serving. We will stand for justice. We will sacrifice for our neighbor. We won't mind the cost of following after Jesus Christ when we compare it to the prize he paid to rescue us. A humble, a hunger for holiness. But also if we understand this great grace that God has given us in Christ, there will be humble confidence. The writer in Hebrews says, as, he, as Jesus is our great high priest, that we can draw near with confidence to receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We, be, we can be confident that he will help us in our sin struggle, that he will give us the power to change, that we can truly love our wives as Christ loved the church more and more. That our children can submit unto the Lord as they submit to their parents as unto the Lord. 
that we can truly love those who may persecute us and hate us because of the work of Christ as we fix our eyes on Jesus. We have humble confidence because we know that he's at work in us and through us. A hunger for holiness, a humble confidence, a healthy unafraidness. What do I mean? We don't need to live in fear. Listen, we do not need to live in fear of losing God's approval or acceptance when we fall, when we blow it. Do you hear me? This is important. We all wrestle with this, if we're honest. We don't need to live in fear of losing God's approval or acceptance when we sin. The work of Jesus is secure. It's final. If you received it by faith, Jesus delights in you. God delights in you. You're accepted, you're forgiven, and you're loved. You don't have to measure up now to someone else's expectations or your own expectations. See, because of God's wrath has been satisfied by his righteous Jesus who died for our sins, God says, don't perform for me. Don't perform for others. You don't need to fear my anger or my resentment if you sin, but depend upon my grace found in Jesus. It is the grace of Jesus. It's the grace of this gospel. It's the grace of this good news that will rightly motivate us to walk in the light of God. Finding life and making God and others and you happy will not bring lasting change. Let me be clear. God's happiness is not dependent upon what we do or don't do. But let me say this as well. God delights when his children depend upon the finished work of Christ to grow in holiness and to grow in our love for him and for others. See, only as we find our life in the finished work of Christ, then and only then will the gospel free us from your fears and deepen your fellowship with God and for others. Again, listen to what Keller says in his book, Prodigal God. We habitually and instinctively look to other things besides God and his grace as our justification, as our hope, as our significance, as our security. We believe the gospel at one level, but at deeper levels we do not. Human approval, professional success, power and influence, family and clan identity, all these things serve as our heart's functional trust rather than what Christ has done. And as a result, we continue to be driven to a great degree by fear, anger, and a lack of self-control. You cannot change such things through mere self-willpower, through, leaning, through learning biblical principles and trying to carry them out. Listen, we can only change permanently as we take the gospel more deeply into our understanding and into the hearts. We must feed on the gospel. We must feed on Christ, as it were, digesting it, making it part of ourselves. This is how we grow. As we look to Jesus, when we see our sin, right, we don't need to fear that God doesn't love us. But because of Jesus, we can face our sin head on and by his grace. And we can grow to hate it as he hates it. And we can depend upon grace to overcome it. 
as he holds on to us in that process, we do have hope for change. He loves me. 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 Let's pray. Father, we know your love is based thoroughly, completely in your son Jesus. It took infinite cost for you to do that. You willed it. You determined it. You decided to do it. Out of your love for us, you are willing to sacrifice your son, the son that you had a perfect relationship. You are willing to turn your back on him. You are willing to put all your wrath that our sins deserve, and you place it on Jesus so that we, by faith, can be completely forgiven and completely accepted, that we even can be delighted in, that we even can see from scriptures that you rejoice over us with singing and that that you dance for joy over us because of the person and work of Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to know that the power to change is in fixing our eyes on Jesus and allowing him and that message to radically infest us and impact us in a way that then brings lifelong change in our lives. Lord, do your work of grace in me and in this congregation for your glory and for the sake of this community and the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, this song reminds us of that work. Let us sing confidently and boldly. Amen. And you can remain seated.